Yes, it was. I've never had an experience like that before or since. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed. Today is author conversation, so I have the author of Mr. Dickens and His Carol, Samantha Silva. So her book came out in paperback this past September 22nd. Check it out. Before I bring Samantha, I just wanted to mention that due to connectivity, her audio faded out in a few spots. And towards the very, very, very end, I have placed a spoiler. What I did was in the middle of our conversation, we had a spoiler, so I took the spoiler and put it towards the very end. So check that out also. And without further ado, here's Samantha Silva. Samantha, welcome to Living a Life Through Books podcast. I'm excited to have you here. I'm delighted to be here, Shanaz. Thank you for having me. No worries. This is so exciting. I'm intrigued. I'm always intrigued about a book about the author. This is not about... You didn't take A Christmas Carol and change the story. You wrote about Mr. Dickens. So let's talk about that, where that idea came from, why you did this, all of that, please. Well, it started years and years ago. In fact, the story of the book is as windy and twisty as a Dickens novel itself. But a friend of mine who's also a writer called me maybe 15 or more years ago and said, we ought to write a ghost story anthology movie. I was a screenwriter at the time because I heard that that's how Dickens came up with The Christmas Carol. And when I, and the Victorians, of course, loved ghost stories, and they sat around the hearth and told ghost stories. That's sort of famous about Victorians. But when I found out how Dickens really wrote The Christmas Carol, how the book came about, I realized that the ghost story really had nothing to do with it. And we let it drop. And about two years later, I quite literally sat up in bed and knew the entire story of the novel. I just knew, like it had been delivered to me overnight. That's fantastic. Yes, it was. I've never had an experience like that before or since. So as I said, I was a screenwriter at the time, and my friend graciously let me run with my own idea. I wrote it as a screenplay, and I, over, over another probably 10 years, sold the option to the screenplay four times to four different companies, got very close with actors attached, directors attached, financing, and then it would always fall apart right at the moment when we were about to produce it for the big screen. Sure. You know, I always say I've had so much heartbreak with this this story, but at some point I finally decided I'm going to try to write it as a novel and just see what happens. And although I'd written some short fiction, I really cut my teeth as a writer writing screenplays. And I knew the story worked because I'd sold it four different times. Right. But I didn't know how to be a novelist. And so that was, that was a stretch for me. It took me another three years to get to a draft. That is the book we now, we now have that's just come out in paperback. 
So how is that transition? What did you do when you decided, you know what, this is going to be a novel. I've only written short stories. How do you translate it? What do you do? You do a lot of soul searching. Actually. <laughs> and you develop a very thick skin and you take notes. You, know, you take people's notes and you have people close to you read it and, and you know, hopefully tell you the truth about it. But I realized at some point along the way, I've been, I was married to a filmmaker for a long time and I've been on a lot of movie sets. And wow. Mm-hmm. Seen amazing people working at the top of their game and I realized that when you when you write a screenplay you're really writing a blueprint for the for the story that will become the film and once it gets to production you have someone who's the casting director and the costume designer and the set dresser and the production designer and you know someone who's making this blueprint really come to vivid life and when you're a novelist you have all those jobs there is no right. One. You are deciding, like, what is the lighting that day? What is the weather? Who is the cast? What is the, you know, the underlace of their sleeve? And what is their interior life? Which is not something you can put in a, in a screenplay. As a screenwriter, you really only have action and dialogue to sure. suggest interior life. You can't say the character is sad. You have to say, you know, what does the character do when the character is sad to indicate sadness? And so suddenly, you know, there's this whole job, giant, gigantic job as a novelist where you're really creating an entire world. And it just took me a long time both to give myself the freedom to do that, the permission to do that, and also, I'm a big, I was in college, I was a history major. And so, you know, the rabbit wow. holes people down doing the research are really extraordinary. <laughs> you can spend, as it turns out, you can spend an entire day, you know, researching what the titles of, you know, dramas and, you know, plagiarisms were in London theaters in 1843. <laughs> plagiarisms? So, Did you just say Plagiarisms in London theater in 1843? Oh, yes. Dickens um, famously, he really fought for one of, was one of the first writers to fight for the idea of intellectual copyright, which didn't exist then. And it was well known that his books were plagiarized almost immediately upon printing. In fact, I think, um, I mean, there were both you know, legitimate stage productions of his books, but there would be plagiarisms. I think Christmas Carol was published on December 19th, maybe 1843. And within six weeks, there were plagiarisms on stage. I know you mentioned that in your book. Yes. No, and and, and you, you mentioned that in your book. And I was reading this. I'm going, what? Oh my goodness. That was, that was just, oh, wow. That, and they plagiarized, you know, people plagiarized his books. In fact, in America, it was when he came to, and traveled to America the year before he wrote Christmas Carol. He, one of the things he did was lecture everybody about, why do you keep stealing my books? You know, why do you just print them and, not, and I'm not making any money off of them? And he, he was really outraged about it. And the Americans were not happy with being lectured because Dickens was their hero. Dickens was a hero in America as well. And he held America in very high regard up until that point. <laughs> you know, what? But, when you talk about plagiarism and copyright, uh, I was born in India. And in Indian uh, Bollywood cinema, even today, movies are essentially plagiarized American movies. Mm. 
I know you say, well, copyright, but they will take a movie and they will twist it towards the cultural norm of um, India. But uh, I like that, you know, when you said, when you do a movie, you have to get the lighting, the costuming, the set, everything just right. And it's all part of that. How did that and your experience with that help your novel? I mean, I, I only, I feel like it's, it can only elevate you because when you write, you are actually thinking about all these things. Because like, let's say I was writing a scene, okay? The car went down the street, the end, one sentence. But when Samantha writes the scene, what would you think about a car went down the street? What are all the elements you're thinking? Well, it's a good it's a good question, and again, I'm I'm a big believer in sort of the structure of, of screenwriting. But then you have a scene, and you and you have to you know, use that scene to further your story to the next plot point. Basically, each chapter is something that's going to get you from one plot point to the next. Okay, and and so what's important? I'm thinking, what is important in that scene? What has to be accomplished in order to move the story forward? And what things in the set, what things literally on the dresser, or, you know, how the windows are dressed, or, you know, what a character is wearing, how do those things suggest or contribute to the story moving forward? And Chekhov famously said, if you, when you're writing a play, if you put a gun on the mantle in the first act, it has to go off by the third act. You can't, you can't, so, so everything, even though I think it often seems not deliberate, it seems like scene setting and, you know, detail that's particular to the imagination of the writer. I think everything matters. Everything Everything that a novelist chooses matters and, and needs to matter. Sometimes it's simply to create a sense of the place, the atmosphere, the character of a person, but those, but those things are always in my mind. And again, I think that comes from my cutting my teeth as a writer, as a, as a, as a screenwriter. I'm in a, a, a writing group and you know, we joke about who in the group are plotters and who are pantsers. And pantsers, plotters are obvious, but pantsers are the people who write by the seat of their pants. And they, you say, well, I, I don't really know what's gonna happen in the plot until I start writing. And that just makes me wanna stick my head in the oven. I wouldn't know what, <laughs> what to do if I started writing and didn't know what was gonna happen next. So Please don't stick your head in the oven. Please don't. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean it literally. I know, I know. Yeah, but but it's I know there are writers who who do that and they and they you know manage to create wonderful worlds. But personally, it's not my process. I spend a lot of time drawing story arcs and character arcs and outlining and drawing thought bubbles. I do I I do a lot before I even put put pen to page. And I think that that helped me as a novelist because I did understand with each chapter, this is what has to happen here. This is the emotion I have to get to. This is to the, to the action, to the plot point that I have to get to. 
and it creates screen, screen screenwriting is a, is a discipline that's very much about economy and efficiency. And I don't think novel writing is that, right? But, but it helps, but it gives you the bones, it gives you the skeleton of the novel and everything else you do is putting flesh and hair and teeth and eyebrows and color on, you know, on those bones. And it was a great, it was, it was a gift really as a, as a writer to be able to do that, but it did take me three different drafts and each draft took me a year to write. So I, I went through some things. You know, the way I look at it, whether it was three drafts or 10 drafts, ultimately you have a book. Ultimately that's what's important is that you didn't quit and that you went forward with it because there are a lot of writers, I'm sure you're aware, who write, maybe they get to a first draft and then they quit. Or maybe they get to a second draft and they quit. Maybe their third draft isn't good enough and then they quit. So the most important thing is that you continued and you finished, which is great. Exactly. And I, and I say this to people who want to be writers and people in my writing group who aren't published yet. I say, look, the only difference between you and, and me as a writer is that I finished. I, and I finished until it was done, until it was ready, until it was cooked, properly cooked. I didn't, I didn't give up. Don't give up because you will, you will get there. Even if you go through 30 drafts, you can, you can get there. But don't give up. Finish. That's, that's the difference. Finishing is so much of, of the struggle. But it's easier said than done. I mean, we realize that. <laughs> so I have to ask you this. I, I have a episode where I discuss books versus movies and i think this is i think this is a perfect question for you because being a screenwriter and you wanted your book to originally be a movie but now you have a book what are your thoughts about just the concept of books versus movies and the concept of if there was a movie of your book and now there's the book what do you think you'd prefer i mean i know this is all fictitious right now because it isn't there but <laughs> another good question because as I said I had so many heartbreaking near misses with the big screen when it was a screenplay that was my original vision for it that's what I wanted to write that's how I saw it and and other people saw it too but I think as in life when you're a writer there will be so many unpredictable twists and turns and you have to make the best of them. And I had agency. I mean, when I decided to write it as a novel, that was, that was my decision because what I was doing wasn't working and I had to, I could abandon it. And I, after so long living with this book and living with Dickens, honestly, who had become my intimate and, and my muse and my mentor in so many ways, I couldn't give up. And I thought, well, this that you're doing isn't working. So go down this other path. And at the time, I, um, it was hard. It was very hard. It was a kind of grieving to give up on it as a, as a movie. And ironically, uh, another movie got made in the meantime that right. was a nonfiction book about Dickens writing The Carol. And I, I didn't go see the movie because I thought, 
don't even go there. That will be another heartbreak for you. But I thought, now I'm doing this. I'm creating, I'm, I'm still in the world of it. I'm still being true to it, but I'm giving it, I want it to have a life. And if it can have a life as, as a novel, I didn't know, but it, but it did. It's, it's had a wonderful life as a novel. And ironically, I'm now, um, I've now been commissioned to adapt it as a play for the theater. So. <laughs> so I figure eventually by the end of my life, it will work its way back to film. <laughs> and then we can have this conversation about book versus theater versus uh, movie, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, but, but what a gift to a writer to be able to, to explore this story in all these different ways. I mean, who knows, maybe opera, opera, maybe opera's <laughs> All right, folk medium, let's do an opera of Mr. Dickens. I mean, I'm looking for Dickens, you know, walking down and just kind of like singing this pathos opera when his wife goes to, you know, Takes there the kids and yeah, I mean, there's that. Yeah, it's perfect. I and love I it. Because, I mean, in real life, Charles Dickens, because Martin Chuzzlewit was a flop, he needed a money spinner. I know he was living lavishly and, a, and, and he was an incredibly generous philanthropist and supported a lot of his relatives, including his father. And he was actually, his, it, it, his publisher's Chapman Hall did go to him and say, Chuzzlewood's a flop. We're going to have to start deducting from your pay. And so he thought of the idea of writing, writing Carol, wrote it in six weeks and published it. And although he didn't make money right away off of it, it became not only a money spinner for Charles Dickens, and he later did readings of it, but, uh, you know, has saved most theaters in the English-speaking world who have a Christmas carol as their sort of bread and butter every Christmas to put on and, you know, assure their budget for the next year. And so it's a Christmas Carol as a, as a story is the gift that keeps on giving. And look at all true. of the movie adaptations there's been, all the theatrical versions of it. And I, and I sort of feel like I've partaken of that. It's, you know, this, this, this story for me is, is also a gift that keeps on giving. And, and as long as it does, I will keep graciously accepting whatever, whatever gifts and opportunities it gives me, including, including being here and being able to talk, being able to talk about the book and about the process of writing it. That's just, that's just beautiful. So what would you tell a writer about writing? I mean, other than keep writing, what is your actual process? The day you decided that screenplay is not working, this is going to be a novel, what did Samantha do that day? And what has Samantha done before she got that first draft? Well, I think that there are, there is a, a process. Every writer develops a process. This is how I go about it. And as I said, I draw a lot. I draw arcs, I outline, I do a lot of different things before I, before I put pen to, to paper. I have a lot of imaginative conversations in my head. My kids always tease me because I write, I talk while I write and I'm not even, even aware of it. But, but I think every writer has to develop their own, their own process and their, and their own ways of finding the story. But I also tell people don't forget to stop and think about why you're telling the story. Why does this story matter so much to you? Why did I devote 
15 years of my life to this story? What, why did it matter to me? And I think that every writer takes on a particular project because they're working something out. They're working out a problem. And they don't know the answer to the problem necessarily, but, but the writing of the story helps them work out the problem. And for me, I, supp I suppose, I mean, I think it changed over time when I started working on this. My kids were little and now they're grown. And you know, I was, I was thinking a lot about family and love and generosity and humanity and um, the gifts we're given and how we pass those on and how we behave in the world. And you know, also at the, at the same time being disappointed the way we all are and alienated in some ways. And um, so I, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happened along the way my marriage fell apart um sorry you know reinvented my life and and i think that i was working out in some ways who am i as a writer what do i want to say about who we are as individuals mm -hmm. in relation to humanity what is our responsibility to each other how do we express our love how do we express our humanity and you know, so I think it's important for every writer to sort of understand, don't like, don't lose the theme. That's, and you, and the theme is whatever is important to you. And for instance, in screenwriting, I say, look, every scene has to have somehow the suggestion, has to carry the DNA of the whole. So that you could read, a, a, you know, an isolated scene and know in a way what the movie's about. Right. And every character is an aspect of the theme. Every character is an aspect of this problem you're exploring. So I, I say that to writers a lot. I say, don't, you know, don't forget to stop and think about what are you working out in your own life? What's important to you? And I also think writers are really afraid of conflict and they want to make nice. They want to make, and they make nice on the page. You know, they want to be good and, and conflict is what drives story. You, and, it, and, it, what's, and it's what drives human beings. You know, you only know, I'm, I'm of the belief that you can only know a character by putting them under pressure and seeing what they choose. And you can, in a novel, you have, you have the latitude to also say what they're thinking, but readers don't judge characters by what they think. They judge them by what they do. Mm -hmm. And characters do, they make choices when you force them to, when you put them under pressure and they have to go one way or the other. And that's the conflict that drives plot, drives story and drives character development. And so I think, I think writers are afraid of that. Writers starting out are afraid like of the darkest things. You know, the darkest experiences of your life are the most formative. Don't be afraid of them. That's the longer you can sit with them, the better you can describe them to someone else and make them feel what you felt and make them feel who you became because of it. And when I, when I talk about writing, I think one of the best ways to explain plot points, you can talk about plot points all day, but if you say, you know, each, each of you, even you know, talking to high school kids, if I told you to write down the five most important plot twists in your life, 
plot turns in your life, the things that, even if they were small decisions at the time, but that changed the trajectory of your life, mm -hmm. we could all do that. And they all nod. You know, you, you can see the wheels turning and they're thinking, oh yes, I do have plot points in my life. We all do. And, and that's, the, that's a rich source. That's a rich vein to mine. And so when I'm talking to writers, that's, that's what I want to remind them. You have, you know, all we have, I have a friend who says, all, all we have as individuals really is the project of our own consciousness. And so our own evolution and what we can contribute to the greater evolution of our species. And I go back sort of to the theme. What is the theme of your life? What are the things that are important to you now at this moment in your life when you're making the choices that you're making and trying to figure out how to be human and how to be the best human you can be? That's what you write about. Wow. That's, that's intense. It's, whew. <laughs> <laughs> that is intense. I'm like, I'm sending you a spellbound. I'm going, oh, wow. But that is, that is so true, though, because, um, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit, little bit about myself. I, um, I've dabbled in short stories. I've dabbled in writing plays. And gosh, this is going to be on the podcast, isn't it? Um, I'm actually <laughs> working on a novel. And the story goes that I wrote a short story 10 years ago for a college project that was reworked a few times. And it was a short story and I let it go. But then later on, I took it up and I made it into a play. And the play went through several versions of it. Title changes everything. And then there needs to be another version, but I stopped. Because like you say, you got to discuss the truth in a sense of all what your thought processes, the plot points in your life with honesty and really do that. So now, after a few more years, here I am. And uh, three weeks ago is when I started with a blank sheet of, uh, blank sheet of paper, actually blank Microsoft Word document and started <laughs> writing. So at the time of this recording right now, today I'm at 32,000 words on a first draft, but that's, you know, so I completely, when you talk about screenwriting and, you know, talk about short stories, you know, your novel and what you, what you need to write about, it, it really hits home. And I'm sure for my listeners, there are several of my listeners who are readers and then there are several who are really writers and they they're looking for something to be like, okay, how do I move my story forward? Why do I write? And I like what you said. Why are you writing? That's a great question. I think, I think every writer why, should ask that. Yes. And why are you the person to tell this story? Right. Sometimes it's your, it's your story and you're, you know, you feel close to it or someone else's story you feel close to. But I do think that matters and to keep asking it. And it's interesting also, I have several, in fact, I had a short story published last fall in, in one story, Wonderful Journal, that I'd been working on for 10 years. And I couldn't, sometimes you move, you move past it and it's just, no, you have to let it go. And sometimes you open a drawer and there it is and you think, 
oh, there you are. You still speak to me. I'm right. not done with you. Somehow I'm not done with this story. And I, so I salute you for trying, again, different versions of it. You're, giving, you're still giving it life and it's giving life to you. It still somehow represents something you're working out that you still believe in. So and yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes, you know? 32,000 words is a lot. So you should congratulate yourself for that. Well, thank you. Speaking of 32,000 words, how many words was Mr. Dickens in this carol? And how many words did you write? And what was that? The, you know, I have to say the original carol, his carol was only about 45,000 words, which is okay. very short. I mean, now would not even be considered a novel. Right. The typical now, you know, I don't know where I ended up, probably somewhere between 70 and 80,000 words, uh -huh. um, I imagine. But I am a famous overwriter. And even though I started as a screenwriter, which is, you know, all about cutting out everything that's superfluous, I'm, I sort of, I like to overwrite and then go back because I like the editing process and a lot of people don't. But I really enjoy it. I really enjoy refinement and fine tuning and reading sentences aloud. I like the rhythm of language. I'm really interested in that and how to make a sentence sing if it can. And all at the same time while it's serving ultimately the story and moving the story forward. So I overwrite and then I'm happy to do cutting and I'm happy for other people to suggest cuts as well. I love working with an editor. That's been a really rewarding process for me. So what is your process of actual editing before you work with an editor, before you send it out? I mean, obviously you want to send out your best version, your best uh, script. So you have your first draft, you've already overwritten it. Now what do you do? I know you said edit, what does that edit mean? Well, in, with Mr. Dickens and his Carol in particular, sure. I made lots of lots of mistakes and and the first mistake i made was thinking that my first draft was the ready draft and ready to show agents because as it turned out it wasn't and you only know it's not ready when someone rejects it <laughs> that's how you know and you know you don't you don't want to burn the read with people i mean you should save the the people you most want to go to um, for, for the time, you know, the moment when you know the draft is really ready. And I did that three times and only on the third time with different drafts. And I, and I realized that each one, I think the first one, the first draft was about, I kind of had written notes on a novel and it still felt too much like a screenplay. In the second draft, interestingly, I had written, written it in the omniscient and third person omniscient. Uh -huh. And an editor told me, that is not modern. You are never going to get anywhere with this novel if, oh, no. you, if you read it like that. And so I did an entire another draft that was putting everything in Dickens' point of view, which I hadn't done. And the Victorians really wrote, you know, omniscient novels with an omniscient narrator. And so that was a, that was a big draft. And then the third draft was, was really the draft where I went deeper. I went deeper in giving myself permission to sort of explore details and, and interiors and interior life. And that's when it really came alive. And so the first, when you get, you send it out to 10 or 12 agents and eight of them say, oh, you know, please send us the whole manuscript. You know, it's working at that point. 
and um, that was that was the lesson. I I I hope I hope I learned that lesson, and I don't have to repeat it because those were three challenging years. But but now in the process, I I think began to understand how novel writing is different, and how I could be different as a novelist from a screenwriter. So you make it sound easy. You're like, oh, I wrote it. I sent it to an agent and eight out of 10 wanted the full copy. But a lot of the other authors I've spoken to have been like, I sent out 30 query letters and I got back 30 rejections. So well, I did have a lot of rejection the first, the first two years. I, you know, my, I often laugh at my once husband said to me one time, you know, I think you have an infantile relationship with your writing. I was really offended. I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you go, you know, off into your room and you, you know, for months and months and months and you come out with this thing you've written and you say, look what I've made. Do you love <laughs> and, I think, and I think all artists are like that. We're all looking for, you know, to be loved and to be approved of and to have a gold star. And so I, you know, I said back to him, well, you're just like that too. We're all like that. But I think the life of an artist and the life of a writer is often solitary and isolated for a long time. You live in your own head, in your own world, and showing what was in your head you know, to, to an agent, to the outside world is scary. But you have to learn how to take rejection. And you have to sort of, I think, learn how to turn that rejection into something that's instructive for you so that when you continue on which you must you fix it in the next draft so that you know whatever notes they give you are also gifts like i'm telling you this is what you need to do to your novel to fix it and if they said this is not a good idea this will never sell stop i might take that into account but mostly the the rejections i had were useful and gave me little clues to what wasn't working until it was working. And that's the moment. It's sort of like the moment when you want to have a baby and you know, you're not pregnant, you're not pregnant, you're not pregnant. And then one day you are. So it's, it's like that, I think, with, with having, having a, a manuscript accepted. It's, it's thrilling and a giddy, wonderful moment. But again, I just kept my you know, my nose down, my head down, and, and I did the work, and I wouldn't, I'm, there are a lot of things in the world that interest me, and that I care about, but writing is the thing I can't not do, so that I is, just keep on. That is beautiful, I like that, writing is the one thing I can't not do, that is, that is brilliant, I have to tell my niece about it, because uh, she has uh she has something written. She's like, um, what does she say? I write because I don't have a choice. And it's very mm -hmm. similar to writing is the one thing I can't not do. So you said it was a very giddy experience. What was the giddy experience? Like an agent picking it or when McMillan finally said, yes, let's do this. What was that? It happened very fast. I had I had an offer from two different agents when other agents were still reading it, and I had a conversation with both of them. and And I I, I love my agent. I'm I'm so happy um, uh -huh. where, where I am. And within a month, we had two offers 
for publication from different houses. And, you know, I loved my, my editor, Carolyn Bleakey at, at Flatiron Books, Macmillan. Um, you know, I think, you know, in some ways, you're looking for someone who loves it in a way that you do, or right. that understands the way you love it, because, because it is your, you know, this thing you made. And um, I think you're looking for people who will, who will shepherd it and, and guide it and make it the best, it, help you make it the best it can be. And, you know, give it the love you really want it to have in the world. I, I, I think that's the honest, the honest truth. That's wonderful. So with editing, you edit, then does your agent edit? And then Flatiron edits? Is that like three separate editors? I mean, with you counting as an editor? For a a debut novel, that's certainly true. That your agent would want it to be, since they don't have a deal for you yet, you know, they want it to be the best it can be. And so um, my, you know, wonderful agent gave me, uh, Emma Perry gave me wonderful notes. And so I did sort of a draft for her before we sent it out. So she felt comfortable. She felt like it was the best it could be before we went out to, to editors or publishing houses. And then you do a, a, a draft, at least a draft with mm-hmm. your editor at the publishing house and then you do a techno a more technical edit so um and then, you know again i loved all three of those processes I, I i think editing was fascinating and in part in part maybe that comes as well from being around the movie world for right. for years that i saw so many movies take shape in the editing room right and that before that, there was just, you know, all this raw, wonderful acting and footage and this beautiful stuff. And you see it be sculpted into a story, you know, into like, into its essence. And, and I think a good editor does that with a novel as well. And so I, 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 I revere the process. I have a lot of admiration for, for a good editor. And so what kind of edits does, what kind of edits do they suggest? Like, are we talking character edits, plot edits, or uh, your grammar structure is not that great in this paragraph? In the case of Mr. Dickens, because the story was so clear all the time, there was very, there was almost no, there was really no change to the actual story or to the structure of it. Well, move this around or this should happen first. So um, in, in that particular case, it was much more about fine tuning, line edits, some cuts here and there. Can you tell us more about this thing, which we don't, maybe don't understand. So. Um, it was, it, was, it was more about that. But certainly, if you're working with an editor, you could do a developmental edit, which would be much more about, well, the story isn't quite working. It's, it, the plot moves down here, it needs to speed up here. You know, there's, there's a plot turn. It feels like there's a plot turn that's missing or information that's missing. Um, and I've just not had that experience. And again, it's because it started as a screenplay. And I'd already done so much of that work on it as a screenplay that this the the edit i did for mr dickens was much more about line edits and cutting and fine tuning so what was your favorite part of the book like what was the one part like even before you started writing you were like i want to write 
the scene so bad. Let me just start off with that scene. If you if you're not writing in sequence, that would that would have been the scene you would have started with. What was that? Like, well, and often often I don't I don't write in sequence. Okay. I let, I, even though I do a lot of outlining, um, I I want the characters to start talking to me. And sometimes you'll just get a conversation going in your head, and you'll hear them, and it'll be anywhere in the story. And you think just write that down because again that. Once you have that voice on paper, once you start to hear that voice and see it in print, then you can elaborate from there, and it tells you how to write other how to write other scenes. So um, the scene, I mean, I, I do I have a favorite scene in, in the book, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that it makes me cry when I read it even now. Oh, what is it? Well, I don't. I hate to have a spoiler alert. Keep listening. I have moved the spoiler to the very end of this episode. Samantha does read a portion of her book, and it is absolutely beautiful. But because of the spoilers, I've had to move it to the end of this episode, and that's where it is, if you're interested. But for now, back to my conversation with Samantha. Uh, when I was um, in high school, we were doing Indian Camp by Hemingway, uh, the short story. And I still remember my teacher. Have you read Indian Camp? Do you? It's a story. No. So this, in Indian Camp by Hemingway, it's a story, and this is through memory from my high school, that a um, OBGYN, a doctor, is going into this village, and he takes his 10-year-old son who's going to witness a, a cesarean without anesthetic, okay? And it's in this village. And the sentence is, the room smelt bad. Three words. <laughs> the room smelt bad. That's it. But, you know, I remember my teacher saying, there's so much power in just that. He didn't talk about, oh, how putrid it was and this, nothing. It was just three words and that was it. And that's kind of how I felt with your lines there because it was, there, there's nothing else to be said. I mean, you've edited everything down to the essence of it, which is, which is just absolutely beautiful. Thank you. And of course, Hemingway is, is a genius at the short sentence, just a genius and at economy. But I also think what you're describing is what invites the reader to lean in, to lean toward it and bring their own experience. We've all been in a room that smelt bad. And, and so, so it, it's a way of drawing the reader in instead of giving them everything. And I think that a, a novel, a short story, is a dance between a writer and a reader. And you want to invite them to the dance. You know, please dance with me. Bring your, bring your own feelings and, and experiences to this. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, I think, even that even in isolation for writers, which is often extreme, that you then have an experience where people dance with your book and dance with you. And it's a, it's, a really, it's a really lovely, rewarding thing as a writer. So what does uh, Samantha like to read? 
I know I just completely switched topics. I mean, I'm just like, you know, I thought, well, let's just lighten up a little bit. What do you like to read? Well, I, I have to say that my reading for the, for the last two and a half years has been on, on the book that I'm, I, I'm writing now. And again, it's, it's about another literary figure from, from the, the late 18th century, actually. And so I read a lot. I've read a lot of bi biography and um, wonderful, wonderful books and original writings by this woman. Um, so I've, I've sort of had had to do that. But as an antidote, I read short fiction um, and sh I love short stories and they're sort of easier to, you know, to bite. And, and I'm very interested. I have a big saved up stack of contemporary novels that I want to read. There's so much remarkable writing out there. And I, I'm, I'm at that moment now where I want to sort of feed my soul with, with new writing and contemporary voices and, and let, the, let the 18th and 19th century, they will still be there. I can always go back, but I'm, I'm really hungry right now for contemporary voices. And, and I also, I have to say, I found that I'm very much drawn, I really wanna read women writers. And, you know, again, there's so many great voices. Um, one of the books that meant a lot to me was Milkman by Anna Burns, which I thought was brilliant and created, created a, a world that I was completely lost in and swept up in. And so that's my, you know, that's my hope for the next six months that I'll be able to fill my own reservoir with contemporary women voices. That's great. Can you tell me more about this book you're, re you're uh, actually writing? Or is that, I know you didn't mention who the historic figure was or anything. So I was like, maybe she can't tell me. Let me ask. I mean... No, I can tell you. In fact, it's just been given a, a, a title and it's called um, Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft. And most people, when they hear Mary Wollstonecraft, they think it's Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein. But in fact, it's her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was, an, an, you know, many people think the mother of feminism or a mother of feminism. She was a feminist before there was such a thing as feminism and born in 1757 and died um, sadly when she was 38 years old, 10 days after she gave birth to Mary Shelley. She led a remarkable life, ultimately being an, an independent woman writer and philosopher thinker who fought for women's equality and, and, and women's rights. But the, the way the novel works is because she lives for these 10 days after her daughter's born, each day of the book, each chapter is one of those days. Oh, and wow. they're all alternating chapters with a, a midwife named Mrs. Mrs. Blankensop, who is in the room kind of telling us what's actually going on in the room. For the first five days, they think the baby's going to die, but the placenta doesn't deliver. And so a doctor comes in, doesn't wash his hands, delivers the placenta, and five days in, she develops puerperal fever, and it takes her five days to die. It's just an awful story. But so each each chapter is one of those 10 days. Mrs. Blankensop, the midwife, tells what's happening in the room, and Mary Wollstonecraft tells a story to her daughter from her life to tether her to the world. 
and tell her what she believes. And so it was very, it's very different from Mr. Dickens. And then I consider Mr. Dickens a, a comic novel and a sentimental novel really in, in you know, in Victorian sense. And um, this, this is, is not that, but it's, but her life, her life and, and her example and her legacy is very important to me and um, very, very important to all women really now and she's as relevant as ever. She's a very modern creature trying to live her life in a very constrained world. And it's, I hope that it will be, I hope people will pick it up and really be moved by her example. You know, in this moment when we've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think it's never been more important to look at our examples, look at the people, the giants, whose shoulders we now need to stand upon. And right. Mary Wollstonecraft is one of them. I think when you mentioned this, it gives me hope in that there have always been women who stood up, I think. There's always been women who tried yeah. to say that we're women. We have just as much value you know, we belong in this world just as much as a man does. And we, our thoughts matter, our feelings matter. And there's always been a woman who, who stood up and said it. It was her and now, you know, you have all the way now Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she just passed away. I don't have the next name of a woman yet who's going to stand up and say that. Maybe it's Michelle Obama. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's there's gonna be a woman leader, and this gives me hope because there always has been. There are heroes everywhere. Right, and if it's true yeah. that history repeats itself, which it does, there will be an uprising, and there will be another woman who will stand up yet again. And I look forward to it. We're, we're getting close to an hour. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I want to ask the most difficult question, which if you've ever heard my podcast, you know what the last question always is. That is your top five all-time favorite books. Oh, man. <laughs> I told <Hard>. you. <laughs> that is so hard. Um, I have to say probably... Certainly, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh wow! Um, my 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 oldest son is named Atticus, and oh. I, you know, had a wild experience where I, I happened to meet Gregory Peck when I was <gasps> pregnant at sort of a weird, you know, party, and um, and he asked me what 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 I was thinking about naming my child, and I said, well, Atticus is at the top of our list, and Gregory Peck grabbed my forearm and said. That would be a very good name. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, I've probably read more than any any other book. Um, a book that, that meant a lot to me when I was in my early 20s is The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. I haven't heard of and it, but... Very short essay. I recommend it to everyone. But it's a, it's a beautiful essay, really, about existentialism. It's where I learned about existentialism. But the, the fundamental question he asks is whether Sisyphus, knowing that he has to roll the rock up the hill, that he's destined to do that, and the, the, hill, the rock will always roll back down for the rest of his life, can Sisyphus be happy? 
And it's a beautiful essay and has been very important in my life. Um, of the Dickens books that I've read, I, I have to say I'm still currently reading Bleak House, which I saved for myself. I think David Copperfield is by far my favorite and probably because it's the closest to an autobiographical account of Charles Dickens' life. Okay. And I, I, love, I love that very much. Um, oh God, can I stop at three because the other two? <laughs> And, you know, shift and, and, and change. Um, I, you know, I have to say there's a, there's a wonderful book on writing that I also give to, give to young people, and it's called On Writing Well by William Zinser. It's a fantastic book about the economy of language and the power of language, and I refer back to it. It's a book I refer back to often. Um, and number five, I don't have a number five right now, um, because don't. often the last, the last I, book I, no, no, I'll think of it tonight. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Oh. Can I just say, I just thought one of it would be A Christmas Carol, and I'm waiting for A Christmas Carol, and I'm like, that's not A Christmas Carol. That's not A Christmas Carol. I'm actually stopping with four. There's no Christmas Carol. Oh my goodness, Samantha, what's going on? I know it would be <laughs> awful to say it's not one of my favorite Dickens books at all. <gasps> no! Sacrilege! Oh no! I love the story of, of course, I, I, I love the story and I, and I love a story of redemption. I think redemption stories are the best stories. I also love coming of age. I love coming of age stories, um, which I think to come off and were very much is as well. Um, but yeah, I think that my fifth book probably shifts and change based on what I just read. You know, if I, if I read a book, I'm one of those people who, you know, read a book and, and fly through it. And then when I get to the end, I slow way down because I can't stand for it to end. Right. And so um, I, I often, you know, I most love the book that I just loved, that I just read and just loved. True. So I want, you know, I want to. I want to stay in those worlds and stay in the heads of those writers, and I and I hate to leave it. So, um, but I will tonight, as I'm you know lying awake in the middle of the night worrying about the state of the world. I will definitely think of my fifth book. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, Samantha, it's been so much fun chatting with you. Thank you. I just so wanted much. to say, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for now. Don't forget the spoiler at the very end. And um, before I go, I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app, Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be a part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B 
podcast. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the links in the show notes. If you love this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Join the conversation with me on a new app called Swell. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's an audio app for podcast listeners like yourself. You will find something there that will interest you that you can interact with. And it's a great way to chat with me. Check it out. Please follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S-H-A-H-N-A-Z-A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavik. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books, signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. to read you a few lines from it but yes um, please okay so Charles Dickens his father did go to debtors, debtors prison when he was a child okay and he was 11 years old and he was the only member of the family that didn't go to debtors prison at that time you took your whole family with you and his father really left him to work at Warren's blacking factory where for I think at least a year you know he put he was in this awful place putting labels on bottles of boot polish and he felt completely abandoned and he was uh, he was so horrified by the experience he never spoke of it throughout his life until much later when he told his best friend John Forster that this had happened to him and so he goes um he goes after lots of things happen. I'll, he, he eventually winds up back at Warren's blacking factory mm-hmm. and has a moment with this woman who's been his muse. And he says, it's been my dark secret all these years of that moment between my father and me until now, no word has ever passed my lips nor his, I'm sure. Of course not. What kind of man would leave his son a lost man. And he wiped his sniffling nose again and nodded. But can you not see, she said, in that moment, his heart was broken as well. For the second saddest thing in the world after a child who's been abandoned, said Eleanor, is the parent who abandons him. And she goes on to say, to tell him, to remind him that, um, Every book he's ever written is a book about Christmas and about the feeling that we must have for each other without which we are lost. And that despite what's cold and dark in the world, perhaps it is a loving place after all. And and it it makes me, I'm not moved by my own writing. It makes makes me feel moved because of Charles, because it's really what Charles Dickens. Absolutely. He's as complicated and flawed a man as, as he was, and of course there's a lot of controversy around him as a man, 
and as a father. I think in his writing that that, that is what moved him. And he fought very hard for a loving world. And I think that that's probably why the story has meant so much to me for so many years. <laughs>